Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are. Matthew Grant here, and welcome back. Now, today we are back on the topic of generative AI with Cognizant, and we're going to be talking to Colville Wood and David Fern, or Henry Gale is behind the microphone this week, so you're going to be hearing from them. Now, very glad to hear when I reviewed this that Cognizant don't believe that generative AI can replace humans in their entirety. Looks like we're all going to have a job for a while, but there are a number of areas where we are starting to see generative AI starting to offer more benefits, in particular this whole area about freeing up time for underwriters to focus on higher value tasks, that is to actually get on and do the underwriting. Now, Cognizant talk about this being an accelerator and an assistant, but of course, we still need to consider things such as data privacy and security when using generative AI. So you're going to hear more about that from the team from Cognizant and Henry. That's all you're going to be hearing from me. That's enough. Enjoy this. Colville, David, great to have you here. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Cognizant is one of the largest global professional services companies. You're helping companies across lots of different industries with their technology. And in this podcast, we're talking about generative AI, which is the technology everyone's talking about. Everyone knows it as the uh, tech behind ChatGPT. But, but David, you're Cognizant's global director of generative AI. How do you describe generative AI when you're talking to business leaders? Magic. Uh, no, it's the way we describe it to business leaders. That's a great question because it's incredibly subjective. And largely, we describe it based on the use case it's solving for. So in some situations, it's a virtual doctor. In other situations, it's powerful underwriting accelerator. In other, it's a co-pilot for development. The best way I've found to describe it is actually it has the ability to create new derivative knowledge based on existing multi-source knowledge. So it has this ability to have this huge corpus of information. It also has the ability to learn on demand. It has the ability to understand. It has the ability to converse with itself to kind of critically think through problems. It is a very multifaceted technology. And another group of people you were recently describing this to was politicians. I understand you've yes. been in the UK Parliament recently. Tell me about that and what yeah, so, so we were in Parliament the other week, and, and the purpose behind that was to essentially help the UK government with a healthcare focus, not necessarily an insurance focus, but to help them understand how to apply regulation and governance over the top of AI to promote innovation. So the AI, so the UK's AI national strategy has two like almost conflicting attributes. We're looking to drive innovation forward, but we're looking to do it in a highly regulated way. So actually what that comes out as is how do we find regulation that accelerates innovation rather than stifling it? And that was what the whole purpose of the conversation was about. And Colville, you're the Chief Technology Officer of Constant for Insurance in the UK and Ireland. Uh, what are the sort of insurance problems that you see generative AI solving particularly? What we're looking at the moment is generative AI being a general technology that can be applied in many different areas of of the organization. So whether it is from content creation, whether that is in marketing or sales literature, whether it's in creating legal contracts or understanding legal contracts, uh, processing underwriting rules, triaging emails that come into an organization, uh, summarizing conversations and documents and email exchanges with brokers, lawyers, claim handlers. But we're also seeing it behind the scenes in the technology area. So creating applications, creating code. Wherever you've got understanding, decision-making and content generation, it can be used across all of those areas. 
it can be, but but how far is it being used by insurance companies at the moment? Well, at the moment, I think this year in particular, organizations have just woken up to the existence of the technology with uh, the launch of GPT 3.5 to the public last year, just over a year ago. And so a lot of budgets for this year were already set on cost reduction, which has really been the focus that we've seen in, in the industry this year. But as the year's gone on, and the understanding of the technology has grown, what we've seen is budgets starting to shift into the experimentation side. And looking into next year, we're seeing a lot of insurance companies starting to put significant budgets aside to see how they can apply this technology, whether it's in the application development and and deployment phase or whether it's in front of house. So we're seeing everything from marketing content generation, and and David's been involved in that, through to migration of code mainframe into modern languages and how we can accelerate that using generative AI to reimagining the underwriting process to take out a lot of the manual processing that still exists there. Yeah, and I think if you had to frame it broadly, I'd say 2023 was the year of the consumer understanding the value of to them of generative AI, yeah, helping them write stuff, summarize stuff really quickly and easily. 2024 is going to be the year of enterprise generative AI, where the enterprise really has the budget, has the kind of understanding through watching the space evolve for the last 12 months and really understanding where their immediate value is going to be realized and then where their medium and long-term value is going to be realized. And the enterprise use cases you're talking about, I understand you think of them through four cognitive architectures. Can you tell me a little bit about what those yeah, are? Yeah, sure. So, we, so at this point, we've dealt with around about 200 different clients in a serious way about generative AI over the last period of months. We've done about 90-odd proof of concepts, about 400 different use cases that we've seen because we collect the use cases and for our internal kind of purposes of, of ensuring that we're developing the right things, that we're not missing any opportunities to kind of help accelerate our clients further. We've developed our four cognitive architectures. To step back quickly and explain what a cognitive architecture is and how it fits into the world of, of the LLM. So a large language model is a building block. It is a part of the overall puzzle, but they don't have multi-levels of memory. Out of the box, they don't know they need to talk to each other. They don't know that they need to interact with other things. They don't know that they have to take on certain personas. And that ability is what we call cognitive architecture. It's akin to the human brain where generative AI is is like a single part of the brain, but it doesn't have memory. It doesn't have control. It doesn't have guardrails. So our cognitive architecture is fundamentally that kind of building blocks around the LLM. And we have four, as you mentioned earlier on. We have a, a business to consumer version we call the customer experience navigator the purpose of that is essentially to give safe controlled access for the general public to interact with businesses their knowledge their information them in a very one-to-one basis at scale in a hyper personalized way we have our business to business technology called the enterprise knowledge navigator that's designed to help organizations accelerate decision making look through internal knowledge bases one of the examples i'm sure Cove will bring up later is our bionic underwriter which is a fantastic implementation of this architecture our process optimizer which is predominantly around how do we take that last 10 percent of processes that exist in the world today things like generation things like understanding things like approval 
and essentially optimize those on comparison, another really big one that we use actually in insurance quite regularly. The last cognitive architecture being our SDLC, so our software development lifecycle navigator, which is predominantly around code development, co-pilots, and some of our project optimization co-pilots as well. They're the four buckets that we largely see everything fall into, but it doesn't mean that there's not edge cases or cases where we have to bring different architectures together. It just gives us that kind of repeatable de-risking when we're going from idea into how do we actually take this and accelerate it into something real. And how do those apply to insurance, Corville? I can see that a customer experience navigator might help someone understand their insurance policy a bit better or, or maybe buy one, but but there's there's quite a few different use cases, I think, in there. There are, and we've we're working on a number of those use cases at the moment. So if we, we the customer experience, one of the use cases David's been involved in is being able to provide an online service access to health and well-being knowledge that you would normally get through a telephone service, but being able to provide that through a very accessible, understandable chatbot that is able to take in your personal circumstances and its knowledge in order to have that conversation. So that can help reduce calls going into a call center. Also, people can have that conversation in a more private way without having to speak it out. And it also allows you to dig down into more and more knowledge in a safe environment where you know where that knowledge is coming from and it's backed up by that company. But we're also seeing in, internally in organizations, there's still an awful lot of manual, low-skill knowledge processing that is going on in an organization where the threshold for the business case may not have been there in the past to automate, where because of the skills of the large language model in understanding data, not unstructured data, being able to process rules that are written in plain English and not having to be coded as complex algorithms, being able to validate that data, we can now look to automate processes that are still very manual, reading emails, triaging emails, looking up secondary information to apply to a case, doing some of that initial decision-making to root information, and being able to present a whole set of information to a human, like an underwriter. At the moment, if you look at an underwriter's desktop, they've got loads of windows open, they've got loads of applications open, they're reading emails, they're looking into policy admin systems, they're looking into rating engines and, and reading underwriting policy documents. So the LLM is able to bring all of that information together, highlight to the underwriter what's important, what's missing, and actually make suggestions about what the next steps are. Yeah. Not only is it incredibly powerful, it's actually relatively simple to do with a large language model. There's still work to be done. I don't want to oversimplify it, but it does mean that the business case threshold is a lot lower than it has been under traditional ways of, of, of solving those problems. I build on that by saying these systems can both be proactive and reactive. So they can proactively tell you something that they've read or something they've understood or a pattern they've they've seen, but they can also be there to reactively answer your questions. And and this kind of ability to both be proactive and reactive is really quite unique. We have very little systems, if you really think about it, in the IT sphere today that are productivity systems that are both proactive and reactive, autonomously proactive and reactive. I think that's also one of the big attributes of Gen AI is that it has this ability. And the second thing I will build on is a Cognizant. We have an incredibly pro-human stance on the whole Gen AI piece. I don't see Gen AI taking a single job in isolation. I see a human being using generative AI taking a lot of 
people's jobs. But I don't see it just replacing the human. I see it becoming an accelerant. I see it becoming like a human 10Xer. You know, people always say, oh, but if we can do 10 times the workload with one person, what does that say for the labor market? I say, well, first and foremost, humans are incredibly bad at seeing over the next horizon, right? When we introduced plows and we introduced tractors when we introduced the steam engine everyone was like up in arms that everything you know the world was ending did you know that one of the biggest industries in the 1900s was ice right and then the invention of electricity very quickly threshold of the invention of the refrigerator and all of a sudden it was done right and it, one of the world's largest industries pretty much finished in a in a couple of years right but the reality is the refrigerator has held many more jobs than it's kind of taken away. We have a very pro-human opinion and job creation point of view at, at Cognizant. I think the only people that will suffer will be people that don't embrace this revolution and sit there and, you know, just bury their head in the sand. I think that's very interesting from the underwriting perspective because we read a lot of reports that say 40% or more of underwriters' time are spent on manual tasks, that bit that hasn't been automated yet. But it's not just making you more productive. I like that it's reactive as well. So the underwriter can then query and say, well, why have you given me this piece of information? Where's it come from? And then ultimately also potentially reduce some operational costs along the way. How do you see it changing what an underwriter's working experience looks like? So I think it will be, I think from an underwriter's point of view, it will be more akin to having a super assistant who is able to provide a lot more value to the information that is being provided to the underwriter than they were getting before. It also undoubtedly will totally automate some of the more simpler risks that the underwriter is dealing with. But we do know and we hear constantly about underwriters um, being unable to answer every query every email that comes into their inbox. We know that there are peak periods for different types of business at different points of the year, and, and naturally not everything is addressed at, at those points in time. So that automation and, and that ability to process the complex data, although they're simple risks, and be able to provide cover and recommendations for those risks means that underwriters will be able to take on more business with less work they'll be able to focus on the higher value, more complicated business and find more niches. There's still an awful lot of areas of commerce and the world which are underinsured. And if we can bring the price down and bring the accessibility up in those spaces, then that, that creates the ability to have more business and untried more business. So I think this offers opportunities for those insurers who, those companies and carriers who embrace the technology to actually expand their footprints and, and their markets, and not necessarily just by taking their competitors' market, but actually by growing new markets. So I'm not an insurance expert. I have a question for COVID, actually. If you were to take away a lot of the overhead on the human, could you actually put that effort into building more capable, more accurate risk models to bring the risk down, therefore bring the cost down, be able to insure more? Is there like a second, third order effect of, of getting smart with, with like a generative AI style product in the insurance world? I think so. I, I think certainly by reducing some of the cost and the overhead of processing that underwriter frees up that capital to invest in yeah. better rate, risk models and, and, and rating models, better on underwriting models. One of the secondary benefits of generative AI becoming 
popular in, in everyday life is that it's highlighted the ability of what we now call traditional AI <laughs> and machine learning. And I think that is now also getting a lot more attention because yeah. people are thinking, well, hold on, this is a technology that is providing benefit. There has been underinvestment generally in machine learning, in underwriting. And so I think that will also get a deeper look. Mostly in insurance, you're looking for those rich veins of niche that you can identify that this is actually a good risk mm. and therefore I'd accept all this business <laughs> because I know it's good business. But equally, I know this is very risky. Nobody else is covering it, so I can cover it with a higher premium because at least I can provide a cover. And I suppose that's an interesting jump-off point where actually generative AI isn't just helping in the information space. And actually, generative AI is very much an information science. But actually, one of the really interesting use cases we find is assisting in data science. It has the this incredible ability to look over massive data sets very quickly, look at outliers, and, and be able to posit understanding and, and provide explanation. I think one of the words that's occurred to me during this conversation is generative AI's ability to surprise us. Yeah, There is no other technology that does that. I've never been surprised by an API. I've never been surprised <laughs> by an algorithm. But You've not lived. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've written a lot of code in my time. Um, I've been surprised when it works first time. Yeah. And I've been I've worked when it passes its, all its unit tests. But the ability to get an answer from an AI that is totally, the generative AI, which is totally unexpected, yeah. but right, is something that really, really changes this technology. What I, what I have used it for recently was I wrote my evidence piece for this parliamentary group piece where you basically have to present like a paper and then you basically discuss and, and defend the paper in the session. And I wrote it and I was like, this is awful. Oh, yeah. Gave it to ChatGPT and said, look, do you understand what an APPG is, an all-party parliamentary group? Um, evidence session. It was like, yes, I understand it, da, 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 told me what it was. I said, do you have examples of, of existing APPG evidence in your data set? Yes, I have examples. Would you like to know about them? I said, no, but I would like you to use that knowledge and those previous examples to basically copyright my really poor draft and turn it into a really excellent draft. And literally, it took about a third of the words out. It cleaned everything up. And then it gave me the whole breakdown of all the changes it made. And I was like, I've literally been. No, I've done nothing more this year than play with GPTs across the board, you know, all the different hyperscalers, and it still blows my socks off on a regular basis. And that was one of those situations. I was just like, "That's it. That's excellent." I've got to ask this question because we're talking about how much it's surprising us with the ability. But these words that you're saying it can do, it can it can learn from examples of decisions that have been made before. It can make decisions. It can do information science as well as data science. A lot of these things are the things that underwriters do. Is this a, a journey towards the end of human underwriting in your view? So this technology does a lot of things that humans do. And I think inevitably it is going to take a lot of the jobs that we do today. But I don't know when or if it will take all jobs. People buy from people. And that is, that is a fundamental thing. And, and, and I think the, the higher the value, the more likely that you want to buy that from a person. One of the questions that I get asked quite often when I go and talk to insurers about generative AI and how we will deploy it in the organization is, who do I fire if it goes wrong? And I think 
we also feel like that as, as human beings. When the computer says no, we get extremely frustrated. Ultimately, we want to deal with a human at the end of the phone or in, a, in an office. So I think that unless we overcome that social response, and I don't know if that is, is, is possible, even for the most introverted people like me, I still like to deal with people at the end of the day. And we've had computers for 60, 70 years in, in general consumption, and there are still humans doing jobs that they did 60 years ago. So I don't think, I don't know if it's inevitable and I don't think it's going to happen in a rush, but I, I do think that there are some roles that over the next three to five years will be replaced by generative AI. I can't see that being underwriters right now. My kind of counter question, my steel manning of the other side of that conversation would be, what do you do when you don't need a human being to underwrite anymore? What what do all of those experts do? Do they go off and, to, to the point we were making earlier on, go off and find new spaces? I don't think we're anywhere near that point yet, by the way, just to kind of bring it full circle. I think we're still very much human in the loop with this technology, and I think we will be for quite some way into the future, mainly because of the, one of the points that I think you made earlier on about who do you blame if it goes wrong? That's why machine learning full stop has been very slow in regulated industries like finance, like insurance, because in fully autonomous mode, it's incredibly difficult to point a finger if something goes wrong. Generative AI is going to be the same. It's going to be a, a tool that we use in a co-pilot mode. Once again, if you don't get on this journey now, don't be a laggard because it, it, this, this is something that is an absolute steam train. And the opportunities, what comes next, will will become very obvious, I think, in the next six months in all the industries. This time last year, we barely knew generative AI exists, and we certainly didn't know that its impact would be this broadly felt. So I think it's just a case of we're just really bad at seeing over the horizon. Right now, there are a few things that companies have to overcome to sort of get started. One of those is understanding the impact of, of using generative AI on, on the organization's security, data privacy. You know, you mentioned healthcare earlier. They've obviously got very sensitive data. Insurance mm. also dealing with fairly sensitive data. So I have a very poignant and, and kind of semi-controversial point of view on this. There is no data privacy issue. If you have a well-engineered cloud and a well-engineered approach to dealing with APIs, then actually large language models are just a new technology. They're as exotic as, from a security perspective, as storing your data on a storage, physical storage array in someone's cloud, in someone's data center, somewhere in the world. Day one, when we were saying to clients, store your data in the cloud, they were going, what, store my data next to someone else's data that they could get access to because no one really understood the Chinese walls between this data, right? I, I always um, liken using a, a, a large language model to basically having a beach ball, right? So imagine you've got a beach ball in front of you and you're holding a ping pong ball. Throw the ping pong ball at the beach ball and catch it as it bounces back, okay? What lasting effect has the ping pong ball had on the beach ball? Absolutely zero. It's totally ephemeral. That is exactly the same as you sending a prompt to a large language model at enterprise. And this is, the, by the way, this is one of the big differences between enterprise and consumer. In consumer land, there is 
a completely different set of terms and conditions where don't forget if it's free you're the product right whereas enterprise land where we have very tight control over what happens to the data when it gets to the llm but when it touches the llm the llm uses it to essentially infer a response then completely forgets you exist which is why we have to build cognitive architecture which is why we have memory systems it doesn't store your prompt these things cost millions millions to retrain and they don't learn on the fly so I would argue that actually the security and privacy perspective is actually more a function of your enterprise architecture as an organization than it is of this new exotic technology. I think the exotic technology piece is more of a fear, uncertainty, and doubt than it is a real risk to your business. I'll second that as well. I think from an organization, from an enterprise point of view, it is just another API hosted by a third yeah. party. Yeah. And so you treat it exactly like that. So it's terms and conditions, it's contractual. What do they do with the data? You agree that with them and you pay for the service that you're getting. By, by their nature, as David said, they don't remember what you've asked them and they just provide you with a response. Companies have been using services like AWS Textract for many years and they've been paying for that service, you pass it your data, you pass it your documents, it extracts that information. Behind that is actually an LLM helping to extract and understand that information and pass you back the response. You didn't have an issue with that. So if you don't have an issue with that, there's no issue because the data that you're passing to AWS in order to get that service is just ephemeral. Yeah. Every single day, at least three times I have this conversation. And it's it's painful. I don't blame organizations, by the way, at all, because you should always be, you know, you should have the default position of paranoid, because why wouldn't you? But really and truly, as long as you've got a well-engineered security practice, it is literally as safe as consuming any other API. So hopefully this conversation has inspired some people to think about how large language models, generative AI could change their business. What would you recommend to particularly insurance companies who haven't started experimenting yet? Well, I think one of the problems is they have started experimenting and, and on, on two levels. I think we've got data scientists in organizations who have started to experiment on, on a serious level with use cases within an organization. But we also have business users throughout an organization using the public chat GPT interface or even a corporate enterprise version of that in order to uh, see how it will help them in their day-to-day -day operations. The LLM does a particular job on its own and ChatGPT provides some architecture over the top of that. But to properly use generative AI in your organization, you need more than that. You need a, a framework and an architecture that sits around that, that API and provides the space for the memory, the prompting, understanding the responses and integrating that into your landscape. You need to think about implementing it as you would any new technology in your organization. There's still a software project there. There's still an integration to be done. There's still an architecture to be worked out. There is some specialist knowledge and understanding that wraps around that LLM that you need to understand and, and adopt within the organization. And, and then you, op yeah. you need to maintain it once it's in place. Yeah. You need, uh, and, and it's more akin to once you've it's in production. It's it's going to be more akin to checking up on on how humans operate in your organization than it is how an algorithm is operating in your organization. 
And I, I would just finish on when you're designing use cases, generative AI by its very nature is what we call non-deterministic. It doesn't have super repeatability. It's not like an application where you build it and it will run and have exactly the same output. So you have to take a non-deterministic application design process. And we've spent literally the last 11 months refining, refining, refining our design frameworks for generative AI use case design, and then our design principles for generative AI use case design. Because an LLM is provided on a computer, people treat it like a computer application and, and an algorithm. And we need to make that mind, mind change. Business users do, IT, ops do, and organizations need to start thinking about this differently. If you want the power of it, you want to be surprised by it. You wanted to tackle situations that you didn't test, and you wanted to tackle those in the right way. So you have to have the controls in place to understand when it hasn't done what you wanted it to do. So how can people get in touch with Cognizant if they want to learn more about your uh, approach to generative AI and how they can get stuck in? So you can find all the information about what we're doing in generative AI and AI in general on our website. You can find our use cases and you can find all our contact details there. And David, what is the one thing that people should remember about generative AI after this podcast? Don't underestimate it. Give it a try and also delineate between the chat GPTs of the world or consumer generative AI and the unbelievable power of focused enterprise AI. I'd say if you're not thinking about how generative AI can improve your job, somebody else's. David Colville, it's been great to have you on the podcast today. Thanks very much. Thank you. Pleasure. Did you know that Marsh McLennan, AXA and Nationwide Insurance, among others, have set up their own in-house equivalents to ChatGPT for their staff so that they can use it for any task you'd use ChatGPT for, summarizing text, translating it, and it's all hosted securely for their own documents. That's just one of the ways that insurance companies are starting to benefit from rolling out generative AI in their operations. And we're tracking all of the insurance use cases in our monthly generative AI in practice newsletter. You can go to www.instech.co to sign up to the newsletter and get the latest update every month. Well, we're delighted to have Cognizant as a member. And if you two are wondering how to share your stories with the world, then take a look at what we're up to, www.instech.co. Of course, if you're an insurance organization and want to learn about all the different technologies out there, particularly those who are actually working and making a difference these days, then again, I'm sure you'll find something of interest. If you want to talk to us directly, then please do contact any of us, hello at instech.co, or you can contact myself or Henry or Robin Mertens through LinkedIn. That's it. We're done. <laughs>